Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic film. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes. Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Desperate terrorists begin their final assault. They should be hunted down and destroyed. But the real threat could be closer to home. Cassidy Yates. Cassidy. Working for the Marquis? That's impossible. Now caught between desire. Miss me? And duty. Everything's been building to this. Is Cisco sleeping with the enemy? I need to know what your orders were. Next time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Welcome back to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. This is Peter Helmstrom. I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi television show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, in stores right now. And I'm Lisa Clink. I was a writer for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I currently have a short story out in the uh, issue number two of Star Trek Explorer magazine. Hey, that's awesome. It was last time it was number one, and now we're into number two. Yes, I have them in in both issues. Awesome. That's great. Um, Okay, sorry. Back to the intro. (laughs) Uh, The benefits of episodic format in the 90s was its freedom of ideas. Freelancers could come in and pitch, and whatever they thought was a great story 
with more or less assurance that whatever, whenever the episode would land in the season, the characters and situations would be more or less the same from the last time uh, they saw them on the TV screen. Deep Space Nine pushed things into more serialized territory, which allowed for some amazing explorations of the human condition. The large rotating cast of recurring characters allowed for profound story arcs, uh, the likes of which Star Trek had never seen, which helped firmly cement Deep Space Nine as one of the best, if not the best, Star Trek series ever made. On the today's show, we have Mark O'Connell, who wrote several episodes of Deep Space Nine and, uh, and, and the episode we're talking about today, For the Cause, which examines the moral relativism of the usually utopian federation. Since those days, Mark's had a career in the ufology world and uh, just this last year was a producer and host for uh, UFO Witness documentary series. Uh, Mark O'Connell, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So tell us how you got hooked up with Star Trek. <laughs> It was uh, kind of miraculous. Um, we have to go back, way, way back in the Wayback Machine to uh, 1990, when Next Generation was just a couple seasons old. And I had just signed with my first agent uh, at age 30 in 1990. And um, one of the first uh, things my new agent said to me was, you have to write a spec for Star Trek The Next Generation. She said, she said, they'll accept a script from anybody, which was true. So the irony of that is my eight, I have a, this brand new agent and she's telling me to do something that I don't need an agent for because Star Trek looked at every script that was submitted. <laughs> you, did, you, you literally did not need an agent. It sounds like an agent. Order. Just like, that sounds like an agent. Just do do the thing that I don't have to do any work for. Yeah, and it, was, it was yeah, it was it was kind of bizarre. It was kind of bizarre. So, uh, I, but I took her up on it and I wrote a spec script for Next Generation, um, and then we submitted it to the uh, the offices at Paramount and then waited. And you knew going in that it was going to be a wait because if they're accepting scripts from everyone, that means they've got just stacks and stacks. And, you know, they were true to their wor word, Michael Piller's word, that every script would get read. Um, so I waited and waited and waited. And finally, we heard that um, somebody, I was never really sure who, but somebody liked my spec script. And they were inviting me into to pitch stories. Uh, and it's, I said before, it was miraculous. Here's why it was miraculous. My my spec script, it was the title was Between Two Darknesses. And in my spec script, it's a very dark script. Everyone on the crew of the Enterprise loses their will to live. Oh, no. And the and the only one who can do anything about it is Data, because he does not suffer from the same human phobias and fears. Um, but Data can't possibly understand what it means to not want to live. So Data's in this huge puzzle trying to figure out, he has to figure out how to save everyone, but he has no idea why there's anything wrong, wrong with anyone. So that was my spec script. But here's the thing. My, my formatting was terrible. The script was about twice as long as it should have been. <laughs> Um, no, really, and you know, this is long before the days of fine draft or anything like that. You're just sort of formatting as you go manually. And I, I did just about everything wrong. So the fact that my script caught someone's attention is kind of amazing. Um, but then the next thing I learned was 
even more amazing. Um, I, I had a talk with Joe Minoski. He was the producer who I guess was sort of assigned to me. Uh, so I ended up talking on the phone with Joe Minoski. He invited me in to pitch for Next Generation. And he said, look, there are a couple of rules. You can pitch as many as four stories, but you only get one shot at it because there are so many people in line behind you. The only fair way to do it is to just give everyone one chance. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And they, they, then they mailed me the whole, they mailed me the Bible for TNG. They mailed me the episode synopses for the current, for all the previous seasons. So I just started getting bombarded with all this material. And after a few weeks, I, I came up with a couple of stories to pitch. Um, and, you know, I, I knew the rules. I would get one chance at this and I would get to pitch four stories. So I went in, I pitched my four stories. And mind you, I'm doing all this from my kitchen table in Wisconsin where I lived at the time. Uh, I wasn't flying to L.A. back and forth wow. to do these pitches. So I was doing Amazing. it all over the phone. So I pitch my four stories and Joe passes on all four of them. Oh. And I thought, well, I had my shot. <laughs> I didn't quite make it. That sucks, but I'll just have to move on. But before I hang up the phone, Joe says, wait a minute. He goes, here's what I want you to do next time. And he starts rattling off this list of, I want you to do more of this and less of that. And I just said, excuse me? I, I thought I only got one chance. And he said, well, normally that's true. But he said, I really like your ideas and I want you to come back and try again. That's great. So then I was off and running. So that's how it all started. Amazing. That, that's fantastic. And so by the time of Deep Space Nine, then I have to presume that like, you, you just had their numbers and you were able to keep pitching on things or was it a... Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. That's so I pitched several, I pitched several times for TNG. Um, and then on maybe my god maybe my fifth or sixth try pitching to next generation i actually made my first sale to that show but that's the one that i don't get credit for mm. um, because uh. it was it was kind of an odd deal what they did was so i in this time i i pitched to uh um i guess it was brandon this time i pitched to brandon braga and it was a good pitch because one of my stories he liked, and he said, I want to take this up to Ira, the showrunner, Ira Bear. And I said, great, that's fantastic. So he goes, okay, I'll be in touch. So I was in suspense for a couple of weeks, waiting to hear back. And finally, I get a call from, from Brandon, and he says, Mark, I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what could that possibly mean in this <laughs> So he said, the good news is we love your story idea. We want to turn it into an episode. He said, the bad news is we just had our script tossed in the garbage today for the next episode. And we need an entirely new script within 48 hours. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That was exactly what I said. And he said, there's absolutely no way we would ever put a new writer uh, you know, and, and especially an outside writer in a position to try to meet that kind of deadline. He said, it's just, we would never do that to you. But he said, I promise you, if you play ball with us on this, you will get your chance. So I said, well, of course, sure, I'll, let's, let's do that. So 
essentially they bought my pitch sentence for an episode that became, uh, uh, it ended up being called Timescape. And it was kind of a fun, <laughs> fun puzzle episode. Yeah. Can't remember now if that was season six or season seven. Of- I, I think it was season seven. That's, that's kind of was, one of, yeah. you know, Brandon Braga. I mean, Lisa, it's, you know, very well too. It's he, he loved those like wonky science, uh, <laughs> things where it's a well, science whore, science whore, I guess you describe it as. And it's, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, he did, a, he did a great job with the script. Uh, I love the episode. It's really a fun episode. Um, and you know, he made it all work. He made the episode like 20 times more complicated than the idea that I had pitched in the first place. And all I had pitched was this simple image of the Picard and a couple of the other crew members have been away, uh, attending some conference or something, and they're heading back to the enterprise on their shuttlecraft. And when they get to the enterprise, they find that it's frozen and suspended animation along with a Romulan bird of prey and the bird of prey has just fired the shot that would kill the enterprise. And then it's, and then time froze. So Picard and the others have to figure out a way to get time running again, knowing that as soon as they do, the enterprise will be destroyed. So so that was, that was the puzzle. That was the concept they bought from me. The weird twist was there's no category for a story concept in the writer's guild's, uh, minimums. Yep. Right. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Maybe it yeah. does now, but at the time it didn't exist. So, um, so I didn't get my name in the titles. I didn't get my name on screen. Um, so, so I claim it as, as my first credit, even though you can't tell because my name is not there. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's how that all works. Oh, and I should also mention back when I was writing for Star Trek, I had a different last name. It was my mm-hmm. Married, married name from my first marriage. I was Mark Garrett O'Connell at that point. Um, and now I'm just plain Mark O'Connell. So, so, so my titles aren't, don't reflect the reality, but, but, uh, but I'm me. Hmm. Oh, fantastic. So then I guess you got called into pitch for Deep Space Nine after that. Yeah. After um, they were pretty much done taking new pitches for next generation mm-hmm. at that point. So after Timesc- Timescape got made, it was almost exactly six weeks after I made that sale that I pitched um, Second Sight on Deep Space Nine. And I can't remember who I pitched that to now. Um, but I pitched uh, Second Sight so that they, they bought that and I did the story and, uh, and the script. Um, I share story. Well, who do I share? Yeah, I, I should have checked this out. I don't get full credit for everything. I have shared writing and story credit. Um, but that's cool because, again, it just it, it got my foot in the door a little bit more. It was uh, Cisco's first romance after the death of his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how that all happened. So from then on, I was just pitching to Deep Space Nine for several more years. That's great. I mean, and 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 the fact that you you kind of became part of the, like regular, uh, you know, freelance script thing. I mean, that, that's got to be, you know, a, it's a big feather in the cap, right? Because like, especially with Deep Space Nine, it's like kind of firmed up more of the writer's room dynamic, which then became more solidified and, and you know, shows yeah. as, as it goes on. It's like, it's it's uh, definitely great to, to be able to keep coming back and get shows on the air. Well, the, the best thing about that is by the time I did um, one of the shows we're going to talk about here for the cause, 
That was my fifth episode. No, I'm sorry. That was my fourth episode. Because the cause was my fourth episode. Um, and by that time, after four, you know, into getting into four episodes, I, I had a pretty good idea of how, not just how things went down in the writer's room, but how things just work, how the whole process worked. Um, I was able to, you know, take a few chances with the stories I was pitching because I, you know, I just, I, I knew things about how the show was put together and, and what, you know, and, and where they wanted to go with it dramatically, that it became easier and easier to come up with pitches that I thought would work for the show. So that's kind of how I kept things going at DS9. It's fantastic. Plus, you know, plus I, I, I by this time I had a pretty good relationship with the showrunner Ira Bear. So I can remember a couple of times when I wasn't even there to pitch. I was I was there to work on an episode, but I would have a new story idea. And, you know, I remember a couple of times I would just sort of stop in at Ira's office and say, hey, I just want to pitch this idea to you. So I'd get these little extra free pitches on the side with Ira uh, every once in a while, which was also kind of cool. That's awesome. Um, so I have to imagine, though, that you're not living in Wisconsin by that point. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, are you in L.A. full time or are you still just hopping back and forth? No, I'm. I'm. Uh, I was. I was in Wisconsin the whole time. I was just wow. flying back and forth. I was. Wow. I was one of their. I was one of their frequent flyers. Oh boy, madness! Yeah. Madness. <laughs> those those were that. great. Those were great trips, though, because you know, I'd, I'd I'd fly out, and you know, you never knew how long the story break was going to go. It could be three days. It could be five days. Um, so. You know, each time it was kind of something new. It was kind of an adventure. Weird things would happen. I remember one time I was there for breaking one of the stories. I can't remember which one, but um, I was looking for someone and I, I, I opened an office door and peeked inside and it was um, all, these, all these very beautiful faces looked up at me in surprise. They were all the actors and actresses the guest actors and actresses for the, for the upcoming show that was just about to be shot. And the director was in that room. And I immediately recognized him as Anson Williams, Otzi mm. from happy days. <laughs> and so I sort of barge into this room like a clumsy oaf and I'm looking around like, Oh, this is not what I expected to find. And there's Potsy Weber from happy days going, Oh, are you here to read the part of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And I, and I was like, no, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and I've always regretted. I should have said, yes, yes, I am here to read for that part. I'm, I'm the mean, most important knows? person here. It could, it could have been a whole new career. And I just blew it. I blew it in a split second. So, uh, you know, fun, funny things like that were always happening when awesome. in, in the offices. That's great. Uh, well, let's uh, get right on into this episode here. Um, again, for listeners, we are watching season four, episode 21 of Deep Space Nine. For the cause, you can watch it now on Paramount Plus or on those uh, DVD sets that are out there, which uh, hopefully will soon be replaced by a Blu-ray or 4K. Even though I guess we shouldn't be holding our breath. Uh, but first, let's go down the syndication sizzle reel for this episode. We have one pillow talk conversation, which reminds us that beds in the 24th century probably aren't very comfortable. One relief effort, which could be perceived as an illegal smuggling run. Two smuggling runs, which could be described as relief efforts. One off-screen game of baseball. One dinner that supposedly smells terrible, but let's be honest, we'd all love Benjamin Sisko to cook us a real meal. 
Vulcan salutes have to go to Avery Brooks and Penny Johnson for easily being two of the sexiest people in Star Trek history. Kenneth Marshall for giving the line, you're even worse than the Borg. You assimilate people and they don't even know it. Warp eight in three, two, one, engage. So tell us about the genesis of this idea. Well, I was inspired by by newspaper headlines. You know the old cliche, ripped from the headlines. This story really was ripped from the headlines. I was inspired by uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. Um, yeah, and I, I, I followed the news on that event very closely because I was so fascinated by the fact that Everyone in the media and in the public, everyone just everyone just jumped to the conclusion um, that the bomber must have been someone from the Middle East. It must have been, uh, it could not possibly have been an American, much less a white American. Everyone just immediately assumed, oh, it must be these other people who always mean us harm. And then, of course, it turned out not to be the case. And then all the people who, you know, were blaming um, people from the Middle East were, you know, nobody, nobody ever apologized or, you know, corrected their corrected their mistake. Uh, it was just sort of swept under the rug. I just thought that was a very potent idea for for a drama, and I thought it would work well. With Deep Space Nine, the whole, you know, just the whole idea of the Klingons inflicted fire. Pinning, pinning blame on someone without any evidence. Um, Civilian government on Cardassia Prime. You know, we all know one of the great things about DS9 is that there was always, always this undercurrent in virtually every episode of, of there's always the potential for violence or treachery on Deep Space Nine because there are so many, so many different people there coming and going, ships coming and going. There's always this. There's always this sort of sense of unease on Deep Space Nine, and I thought that would mix really well with a story about a terrorist act on the space station. The Cardassian military. So, um, the Klingons. I just happened to look around in my files today, and I found the original story treatment for this episode Ooh. that I pitched. Yeah. Amazing. I don't know if you can read it on the top, but it says. It says upstairs to Ira. <laughs> so that that means that when I pitched the story to whoever I pitched it to, they liked it enough to say they were going to take it up to Ira. I don't remember if there are stairs in the Hart building. I don't remember anybody actually needing to run things upstairs, but that's what they said. Um, so, yeah, so I, I did a story. My story was very, very simple, the story that I pitched, much much more simple than the episode that um, that we ended up with. In, in, you'll see here in the episode on screen, um, the big catch to this episode is that Cassidy Yates is smuggling something to the Maquis. Mm -hmm. And Cisco dealing with the possibility that the woman he loves is actually breaking the law. And not just breaking the law, but doing something that could have severe repercussions politically throughout the whole sector. I mean, this is really a big deal. And so we see here in in the final version, Cassidy Yates gets the finger pointed at her right in the teaser. 
in in my yeah. initial story, it took about two acts before we started to suspect that Cassidy was was you know uh, in cahoots with the Maquis. So that was the first big big change they made. They just they just brought that reveal right up to the teaser, and then yeah. you know spent the rest of the episode just sort of toying with Cisco's conflicting emotions. Um, well, I think it's it's toying with the audience too, right? Because like mm-hmm. traditional oh, yeah. wisdom at the time would be like, oh, it, it's a suspicion at the end. It's it's all a misunderstanding, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it, it should be yeah. proven to be innocent, and I, you know, I think it, part of the reason this lands so well is because it it has that sort of bookend aspect where it's like, no, she's she's guilty, and it's uh, and spoiler and alert, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but it, it's about kind of you know. Cisco's being like, uh, you know, uh, grappling with that himself. You know, think in the way Deep Space Nine always is, right? It's like things are never black and white. They're always some sort of shade of gray. Um, And uh, so, yeah, um, I definitely understand the the impulse to have it be more gradual over the course of the episode. But it, it. uh, But I also understand the impulse to put put your sort of your big guns up in the teaser. Yeah. You know, so that you can grab the audience so that they don't have to, you know, you don't have to basically tread water, you know, for two acts, you know, to, to keep your audience attention. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, in my original version, the, the teaser is mostly Cassidy 8's freighter has just showed up at Deep Space Nine after being out on a freight run and there's an explosion aboard her ship. So that's the terrorist act. In, in my version of the story, that's the terrorist act that sets every everything in motion. Um, and it just so happens that Cassidy is the only survivor of the explosion mm. and that there were a couple of Bajorans on the ship who she was ferrying back to Deep Space Nine out of out of kindness. So there are all these all these small things that just sort of collectively combine to point at Cassidy, you know, having some level of uh, guilt or complicity in what's going on. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm proudest of, though, with this episode is um, the fact that I was able to successfully pitch a story that really had some serious consequences for the overarching story arc of Deep Space Nine. Um, And I I was proud of that because that's the kind of episode, that's the kind of special episode that the producers like to write themselves. They don't like yes. it. They, they, they don't like to hire outsiders, freelancers, to do uh, stories that are, are really, like I said, special. They, they, mm-hmm. they, uh, they intersect with seasonal arcs or multi-episode arcs. Um, they, they, they mess around with relationships between characters. It's it's really a big deal. So I felt very um, six months. Well, yeah, I'll use the word again. I felt very proud that I was able yeah. to actually slip slip one through, as it were. Like, wow, I actually got to do an episode that that messes with uh, Cisco's relationship with Cassidy, and it messes with our relationship with uh, with the Bajorans. It was it was a really it was a really cool thing to do. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm a little jealous that you got to do a story that had consequences. There I am. Uh, in the in the future episodes on Voyager, we always had to do standalones, and so it would have been really nice uh, to do something that 
had uh, continuing repercussions. Uh, well, remember though, I had no idea that they would treat the story this way when I pitched it. Um, although my story, the original story that I pitched does involve Cassidy Yates. She does turn out to be guilty. It does drive a wedge between her and Cisco. You can find a but at the end of my treatment, we'll let you know. Um, Cassidy is exonerated and goes mm. free. Yeah. But then Cassidy and Cisco then still have to deal with this wedge that's come between them. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in the episode we're seeing here, that ends very, very differently. In the yeah. actual episode, they really up the ante. Cassidy actually goes to jail. Cassidy's imprisoned for like a yeah. year, I think. Yeah. Um, Tracy uh, Middendorf, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, plays the uh, second version of Zial we see here, a character who's recurring throughout the Space Nine and notorious for being recast not once but twice. Um, and this is Zial number two, I guess you'd say. Um, she's only in this one episode. Uh, you know, has a bit of a different flavor, I guess, than, than the first one and the second one and the third one. But, um, you know, kind of, yeah, I mean, I don't want to say she did a poor job, but it's, uh, she plays it a little more austere, I guess you'd say, a little more um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 emphasizing the princess aspect, maybe more than um, um, the third Zial does. Um, but, well, uh, this, uh, I had nothing to do with the B story. That, that was all added in the script. That was all added. Got it. Yeah. I. Uh, it's uh, an interesting storyline. It def- definitely feels very, un- I mean, it, it is entirely unconnected from the A storyline. Yeah. There's, there's, oh, yeah. You know, it, it could easily have been written for another episode and then just like cherry picked and put in here. <laughs> yeah. It kind of feels like it was just something that got plugged in. Yeah. To, to do, fill up a gap. I do it find happens. it really funny though that like, you know, Bashir is trying to get Garrick to pay attention, but Garrick's been paying attention to the game for the whole time. <laughs> yeah. That's just a very Garrick thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been fun to write for Garrick. Well, again, I didn't I didn't do this part. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, but I bet it was. Um, <laughs> he's a, oh, here's a Cisco, brain stuff. But. Here's Cisco making something that's gonna smell terrible. I always love seeing Cisco in uh, casual wear. He always he always looks so comfortable, but also just so good all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 you don't see that often enough with Star Trek commanders uh, and captains. You don't you don't see them like in, during their downtime in their quarters. Yeah, and really, Deep Space Nine probably does it more, I think, than uh, any other show. But even then, it's it's not much. I just did a podcast with uh, Sirach Lofton a couple a month or two ago. It was very fun. The seventh yeah. rule. Those guys yeah. do a really good job. We we love those guys. Yeah. I just love the chemistry between between Cisco and Cassidy is is really great. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's too. Very, this is this is uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of the the first time we're really seeing like the this new family dynamic aspect that feels very comfortable. It feels very like you know, even though the you know. Uh, 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 Cassidy's a new addition to this to this father son dynamic. Feels very like, yeah, this works. This is this is a yeah. good thing, you know. And this is uh, uh, lovely. Yeah, and and Sirach Lofton does a really nice job as Jake. 
with his sort of reaction to, you know, catching his dad kissing a woman. He mm-hmm. he has a lot of you know he has a lot of fun with it. He teases his dad about it. These are re- these are really fun scenes, except for Cisco being so. You first. He's a bit obvious about nosing around about where Cassidy's going to be heading on her next. Oh, on her next yeah, place, a little bit. You know? <laughs> it's a little like, no, no, where are you going again? And how yeah. far away is that? And, and and how close is that to this other system? Try, try well, at least you just call him out on it and say, boy, you're awfully interested in my plans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this scene is so funny in the turbo lift. Yeah with them just making eyes at each other. Yeah. I'm not sure I totally, totally buy Garrick, you know, crushing on someone. That takes a little getting used to for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think like um You're not going to hurt me. You know, I always read it in like almost all of his dynamics on Deep Space Nine is like he's always playing a long game with them. Like he's has mm-hmm. this whole spy thing on mm-hmm. going on being like she is someone who maybe not today, but someday will be a great resource of information for me. And, uh, you know, so is always playing, always has like an ulterior motive with everything he yeah. does. And, so and all this seems slightly flirtatious. Yeah. With whoever yeah. he deals with. Whoever he deals with. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I, I see so much stuff on Twitter um, among Star Trek fans um, talking about how you know, there was there was a deeper relationship between Garrick and uh, Doctor Bashir, yeah. which I always find which I always find really interesting and amusing that so many people read that into their relationship. And, you know, I watched this episode again last night, and I'm like, yeah, that's there. <laughs> yeah, that's still, yeah. I th- even Andrew Robinson talks about that a lot. But I, uh, oh really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, I understand he's kind of a, you know. Raging Republican, as I understand, but maybe I'm off on that. But it's, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of it was like conscious at the time versus looking back now and being like, yeah, that would have been great if we had done that. So maybe we'll just, maybe it was there. Maybe we knew it was happening all the time. Aren't well, we there's always an interaction. You know, you see what the actors do with, with what you give them. Yeah. And then something that they do that maybe is interesting or, or you know, a little deeper can kind of inspire you to include that in future episodes with them. Sure. And so I, I think that, you know, watching dailies and stuff like that, they must have, the writers must have seen, you know, Garrick and Bashir having some chemistry and I bet yeah. they played, lead in, leaned into it in future episodes. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm sure, no doubt. The entire cargo hold with barium radiation as a precaution, but I need to go now or I'll... How was it writing for uh, Avery Brooks? Stand by. Um, well... Is there any way we can make a shorter and It was, uh, it was, I guess I'd have to say it, it had its challenges. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm an earthbound 20th century white guy uh, writing for a futuristic 20, what, 25th century black man um, who has a very, you know, um, a very specific take on his, his, his life and his duty. I, I've never seen a character so duty bound, I think, as Cisco is. Um, so yeah, it's and and you have to you have to reconcile the tough scenes with the gentle scenes with his son. I think sometimes I did a better job with the, the gentle scenes with his son than I did with some of the you know the heavier action stuff. Um, but you know he's an amazing actor. 
he he makes everything come to life. There's one scene coming up a little bit in in this episode where I wish I could take credit for it because it's it was just such a brilliant moment in this episode where Cisco's finally become convinced by Eddington that Cassidy actually is breaking the law. She actually is smuggling supplies to the Maquis. And she's heading out on one more trip. And Cisco just comes to the loading dock and he just says, hey, I was thinking, Cassidy, let's just get the hell out of here. Let's just go to Riza. Let's just disappear. Let's just disappear for a while and just be just the two of us and just pretend nothing else exists. Let's just do that. And let's not tell anybody where we're going. It's a really great scene. Avery really sells it. Um, it's about the McKee. I'm not stupid. It's it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. I think probably my favorite part of the episode yeah. for sure. It's just it's, so well done. Uh, and again, you know, all credit to Ron Moore. He just really made that scene work. He knew how to make those two characters interact with each other in this weird, weird situation. Because it is, it is a weird situation for Cisco. You know, oh, yeah. he's, he's openly flirting with walking away from his responsibilities, which is not something Cisco is ever going to do. You know, yeah. Just the, just the idea of Cisco just taking off for a few days, not telling anybody where he's going. It's crazy. Cisco couldn't possibly do that. I wouldn't say that around me. But he, like I said, he just totally sells that scene. I, I just love it. I'm, I'm and again, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. I wish I'd had a chance to write that scene. <laughs> it is, take it credit. Is, yes. <laughs> take it all. Yeah. Take it all. Well, just, just take it. <laughs> Ron Meyer's not here to tell you otherwise. <laughs> I, I guess I can say that. Um, what matters to me. My idea. My idea inspired the scene. Yes. Yes. My story. Without the surrounding scenes, that scene wouldn't have been able to exist. So it's basically you you wrote it. You know, it's a. Yeah, and so in my uh, so obviously that scene is not at all in the story treatment that I pitched. And the other big difference between my pitch and what they ended up doing was um, Eddington here turns Mm -hmm. out to be the bad guy. Right. You know, it's kind of last person you'd expect, but he is clearly defected to the Maquis. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't in my version, but I did have a bad, I had a, an antagonist in my version, and, and that was uh, a Bajoran character, a Bajoran prosecutor, who, um, if you remember, my story began with a, a terrorist act on Cassidy Yates' ship that mm-hmm. damaged her ship and the space station and killed a couple of innocent uh, Bajorans. And so Bajor sends a prosecutor to DS9 to investigate the incident. And this prosecutor instantly becomes convinced that Cassidy is behind it all and really becomes the main heavy in the story. So that was that was the, the other big thing they changed was taking out uh, the Bajoran antagonist and putting in Eddington, which, you know, again, a whole new character arc. I think that character arc, the Cisco versus Eddington storyline, went on for three or four episodes yeah. um, during the rest of the show's run, and that was a great <laughs> that was a great dynamic between those two characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, it it uh, you know, according to uh, Iris Stephen Barron, an interview, they, they he talked about how like there had been this like huge fan theory at the time that Eddington was actually a changeling. And when they, the writing <laughs> staff heard about that, they were like, we're not doing that. But, it's, oh, wow. but uh, I think they had it in their mind that um, Eddington would sooner or later be revealed to not be the kind of uh, 
upstanding Starfleet officer because he'd been in a couple of other episodes before this as well. Mm-hmm. And um, to have him be uh, uh, revealed as as more duplicitous, um, it's just it's that great arcs that all these recurring characters could have. It, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And, and again, right. I don't know how much they planned that out from the beginning, from the first time that they introduced Eddington, yeah. and how much of it came from like what the actor was giving them. Maybe he, mm. maybe he, you know, seemed a little shady just the way he delivered things, and maybe Absolutely. that kind of gave him inspiration for that. Absolutely, of course, Eddington is played by Kenneth Marshall, Ken Marshall, uh, best known for his 1983 movie Kroll, where he was the starring role. And shut up, it's great. It's a fantastic <laughs> movie. <laughs> Um, I wasn't going to say anything. I, <laughs> I like I like Krell. I it's like awesome. Krell. I'm, I'm overdue for reviewing it. After Hell yeah! It, yeah. it had <laughs> the most bonkers marketing campaign of all time, which involved wedding specials, like wedding coupons for some crazy. Got a, a Krell wedding because the whole story is about like a wedding disrupted by this evil force, and then the. You know, husband uh, the husband to be has to go save his his lady love, and that's it's very classical. It's a great great movie. Um, deserves a four K transfer. Um, but um, you know, since that movie, uh, can you know his career kind of you know faded, waned a bit. Uh, this was probably his his big um, role after that as the recurring character of uh, of Eddington. Um, hasn't really done anything in the last twenty years too. I couldn't quite find out what happened to him, but um, if he's out there. We love you. You do. Yeah. No, he's really well, good. He he made the most of this part. He definitely did. I did. I do love this scene too, as well. This uh, Cisco affirming to his son again that, like, because I think that's really what describes Cisco. Like, Picard is a character who cares about the larger scope of things. You know, he's always thinking about the big picture, right? Whereas I yeah. feel like Cisco is very much like family friends you know yeah and and how that affects um um how that can affect the larger picture i I know you're supposed to be the ones asking the questions but i have a question back at the two of you what do you think it would be like to be cisco's kid (laughs) i mean i was really struck by that rewatching the episode last night wow that must be so hard yeah yeah i uh lisa do you want to go first uh, yeah, that would be challenging um, because you know that you know as as Cisco's son, everything you do is going to kind of reflect back on him, and yeah. you know you would be so worried about making him look bad or embarrassing him or not living up to expectations. It seems like there would be a lot of pressure that came with that. I feel like it would be pretty great <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if there was if there was anyone to have as a father in Star Trek. It would be that would be Cisco. So like for the first ten years of Jake's life. Cisco is just, you know, he was a commanding officer for uh, the, whatever that starship was. Um, he wasn't the emissary, you know, he wasn't on Deep Space Nine. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he, you know, you'd go play baseball with him in the holodeck. It'd be mm-hmm. great. It'd be great. <laughs> uh, I think it would be very interesting when, like, when he does become this, like, godlike figure and the sort of existential crisis of all that. But, um, but Jake was, like, 15 at the time. So I feel like the early days would have been pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine there would be a lot of interesting pressures placed on you as Cisco's kid, both, yeah. both real and imagined, I think. Sure. Yeah. I do love the references here to the Tholians, which, uh, yeah. of course, goes back to the Tholian web from uh, Star Trek, the original series. Yeah, um, I always love those, uh, those call-outs. 
It's a great, and it's a great alien design too. It's interesting to think what medical supplies would look like for Tholians. Because <laughs> they're kind of crystalline looking creatures. Yeah, that's a really good point. What would yeah, they but, make? Oh, well, I'm, I'm uh, sure everybody gets sick, I guess. But. Another thing I like between uh, between Cisco and Jake is, I can't remember what, I just got a new holiday. I can't remember what Jake says to prompt it, but but Cisco just says, "You're a writer. Yes. Make something, make something <laughs> up." <laughs> right. I was like, "Yeah, I think hey. we saw that a little bit earlier." Yeah. Nice little salute to the writers. I appreciate that. <laughs> we 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 need that every once in a while. <laughs> I guess this is the first time on the podcast we've had uh, uh, Cassidy Yates on 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 an episode, so uh-huh. yeah. it might be worth uh, talking a bit about her. Um, you know, Penny Johnson's been in a lot of a lot of movies, a lot of shows uh, through the years. Um, Got her started at a pretty young age, and uh, some of her early roles was as in the, the Hills Have Eyes 2, where she got killed by the eyes in the hills. But, um, oh, no. Uh, yeah, and, you know, kept working along on a number of different shows, did a lot of, like, made-for-TV movies, was even in an episode of T.J. Hooker with uh, William Shatner. Um, but uh, got her big break, um, arguably, with this, uh, this series right here, um, depending on what you want to look at and then of course now is having a kind of a second career life with um a regular role on the orville which is um great to see as well but uh, uh, watching this episode again i was just like she's just so beautiful <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just startling <laughs> yeah. how good looking some of these people are yeah, yeah. <laughs> damn it <laughs> and she has an amazing voice oh yeah um and I think that's one of another that brings up another thing that I love so much about this episode. It's a big deal that Eddington wins in the end. Yeah. Eddington, yeah. Eddington outsmarts, outthinks Cisco. Of the Defiant. And Cisco's like, yes, guilty. Hmm. He he messed with me and I blew it. Yeah. That's a, that's a really unusual dynamic for the protagonist of a show. Absolutely. And again, something that Deep Space Nine could pull off that I can't imagine the next generation or Voyager doing to their captains. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. Janeway would, wouldn't have let this happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And here it is. Here's the scene where Cisco just says, let's just run away. Yeah. Let's just, let's just run away from all this crap and have fun on Risa. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, honestly, I, I think if she had said yes... Um, he would have done it. I, think I really so do too. think that. I really do think that. Um, he might have regretted it in a week, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I actually think he would have done it. Unlike you know, I don't. I don't think anyone else would have would have done that. You know, I mean, obviously Kirk, we know, didn't do that. But uh, yeah, you know, letting letting Edith Keeler die. But um, uh, you know, but Cisco, I'm like, yeah, you know, I think he might. He, he probably would have. would agree. Yeah, and at this point, it's also great. Another thing in Penny's performance, it's it's painfully obvious to, to Cassidy at this point that Cisco knows something weird is going on, and he just yeah. can't he just can't bring himself to say it. Which is also, you know, that's a very real human dilemma. Cis, Cisco knows what's going on. He's terrified of confronting it. I mean, he's terrified, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and she knows something's going on, but for her own reasons. She has to keep her mouth shut about it. She she can't reveal anything. So, and I think that's what makes this scene so great. They're both just like, have a good trip. They're 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 walking such a fine line. 
with what they say and what they reveal to each other. Yeah, definitely a lot of layers. Yeah. A lot of layers. And there she goes. She knows. She knows something's wrong. Yeah. It's a tempting idea, Ben. And you know, it's, 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 it, what I love about Star Trek 2 as a whole is like, there's this focus, like commitment, you know, duty. I mean, these are, these mm-hmm. are themes that, that keep coming back. And like mm-hmm. Cassidy really, you know, that she has that commitment. She has her own duty to that bigger idea, bigger ideal. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this episode too is at the beginning, you know, the Federation is giving industrial replicators to to the Cardassians, who are, you know, as we know from the show, are the bad guys. The bad guys, <laughs> yeah. And, and they're doing it, and and you know, Eddington at the end when he's talking about how kind of screwed up that is, it's like uh, he's not wrong, you know. Like yeah. the, the Federation is, it, it, from a certain point of view, they're doing these humanitarian efforts with the idea that like, oh, this could benefit us, right? And what Cassidy is doing, in some ways, is the more noble thing, you know? Like, she's just uh, helping these people, these, these, you know, impoverished people who are being subjected to a lot of, a lot of hardship. And with very similar things, it's, you know, it's medical supplies and it's, um, you know. And when Star Trek is really working well, then it really does pose those kind of dilemmas. Yeah, and yeah. it really should make the viewer think. Exactly. What would I do? Or who is right actually yeah. here? Yeah. Um, I think that's that's one of the ways that it can really be powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And and do I do I support the Maquis or do I condemn them? Or 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 is it a combination of the two? Because yeah. they're in, you know, they're in a very sympathetic situation. And yeah, Eddington, I gotta I gotta hand it. I think this is Ken Marshall's finest moment at the end when he he gives a very, very eloquent almost moving description of why the Maquis need our help, of why we yep. shouldn't turn our backs on the Maquis. It's, it's, it's a beautifully written scene. Yep. And, and again, he, uh, he sells it, man. Ed yeah. sells it. Yeah. But of course you mean his again. second best performance after Kroll. <laughs> Man, you've got me so you got me so hyped up about watching Crawl again now. It's great. It's great. I mean, the Blu-ray is decent. Yeah, go pick it up. It's fantastic. But it's, wasn't uh, the uh, wasn't the evil creature just simply called the Beast? Yep, that's what it is. <laughs> and there's a giant spider in it. I mean, what more could you want? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, the giant spider great. web. It's great. And a cool cyclops, right? Yes, it's cool Cyclops. Um, you get to see Liam Neeson in a very early role. Um, oh, wow. The what's her name from Superman and uh, what's his name from Dune are also in it. Um, it's uh, it's it's a wow. British, you know, it's all British. We're not here to talk about Kroll, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's uh, it's an entirely British uh, production. So you see a lot of like uh, recognizable faces from Great Britain mm-hmm. who uh, uh, pop in on a lot of other things. But it's a great. Well, I love that movie. Well, I was drawn into that movie because it was directed by Peter Yates, who Mm -hmm. has directed some of my favorite movies like Bullet and Breaking Away, a really versatile director, Um, maybe a little bit out of his league with Kroll. Sure. I I think Kroll was a little out of its league with Kroll. The whole whole movie was uh, trying for a a certain vibe that just maybe had never actually been tried before on film. And it's, uh, it's a hard note to hit. Well, actually, looking at the, I'm sorry, the scene, the Quark, uh, Eric scene. <laughs> Back to Star I really Trek. like that Quark is messing with him. Yes. You know, that he, that he knows, you know, that, that Garrick just imagines conspiracies everywhere, and he totally yeah. plays into that. I love it. 
Yeah, and anytime Cork is in in any scene, it's always elevated. He's uh, it's fantastic. But these this 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 visual effect of the Badlands out here uh, gets repurposed so many times. Like I think it's also in the first episode of Voyager. It's like the you know this, the the kind of a what would you call it funnel? That's not the right word. The spirally funnily thing. Wormhole. <laughs> Nah, that's all right. Yeah. But anyway, the look of it gets gets reused a lot. And it's um, always fun to see it. Always fun to see it. But. Let's go, Mr. Worf. You have the bridge. It is such a good like conspiracy because right here you don't suspect a thing. Like Cisco is yeah. here and he's doing the thing that you expect a Starfleet officer to do is like I, I'm in command. I'm going to make the tough calls and do the tough things, and you know. Mm -hmm. I have to be the one to go out there and, 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 and bring her in. And and then the twist of being like, oh, fuck, this is actually, this was all to get me away from the station so that there's no one in command there to safeguard the replicators that are all very important. And uh, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. Yeah. And he immediately knows it's Eddington. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's got to be Eddington. It's got to be Eddington. Me out here so the Marquis could attack the station. This is a great scene. Oh. Yeah. oh, you feel for both of them so much. I was supposed to meet a Marquis ship at these coordinates. I don't know anything about an attack. Yeah, and Cisco's being torn in half a dozen different directions. You know, loyalty to her and to the station and to Jake. Mm -hmm. I suspected that you might be. You asked before what it was like writing for Cisco's character. Um. A scene like this, I think, kind of tells it all. He's just I tried to tell them that I'd made too many. He has a he has an unbelievably strong sense of duty. But he's also this extraordinarily deep human being with deeply felt deeply felt convictions. Yeah. And he always manages to find a way to, to project that in every scene. It, he's he's just kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, Avery Brooks has done a lot of work in Hollywood, but he's, he's mm -hmm. largely stepped away uh, at this point. And it's, uh, I wish he, uh, you know, it, 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 and we talk about this a lot. It's like, in some ways, it's it's Star Trek was the best of times and the worst of times because you, you get to see so many great actors do yeah. so many great things. And and yet you kind of lament the fact of like, oh, but this is, this is like, there, there wasn't, a, you know, they weren't starring in hundred million dollar movies next year, right? And this is, yeah. you know, yeah. um, we talk about this a lot with Voyager and, and and Jerry Ryan. How just she's so good in every and Avery yeah. Brooks as well. All of these people in Deep Space Nine <laughs> just, are just great. It's like, yeah, just give them movies. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is this is this is kind of end of the station for the next few hours. Have you ever seen the um, the doc? I think it's the documentary that William Shatner directed about the Star Trek captains. Yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's the one where Shatner's has sort of finally tracked down Avery Brooks to interview him, yeah. and Avery's just in this really playful mood, and Shatner's asking him questions about you know how he portrayed Cisco and all this stuff, and Avery just sits down at the piano and he says. Sing it to me. Sing your, <laughs> sing your question to me. And Shatner does. He actually sings a question or two to Avery, and Avery's just got this big grin on his face like, I got him to do it. It's really quite a moment. 
It's fantastic. Our priority is to get back to the station constable, Captain Yates. Actually, in my treatment, a um, the but uh, now who is it? I end up I end up bringing in. Oh, I know what it is. Once they realize that the 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 antagonist is this uh, Bajoran prosecutor. I know I mentioned that character before. That person ends up being the bad guy in this in my treatment of the episode. Mm-hmm. And they catch they catch him by having Odo impersonate him. So, oh, yeah. so Odo Odo actually does take on the form of this Bajoran for a few moments. That's great. In my story. But they threw it out. Mm-hmm. Oh man, all my best stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what they replaced it with works. I yeah. know. I know. I'm being silly. Um, yeah, and it is. I what I was kind of referring to with, with the introduction was how like you're you're coming in, you're doing this freelance work, you know, and 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 given you know, and yet there's so much like serialized elements of the show that that you just wouldn't have you know been able to know about, would you? Because you know mm-hmm. like, things are constantly changing and evolving, and yeah. and that's what uh, it's kind of a tragedy that a lot of like the freelance TV mark writing. Uh, 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 industry has kind of faded away because nowadays it's everything serialized to the point yeah. where like yeah. everyone just you know showrunner just wants that total control all the time over the uh, <laughs> I like that detail in the last scene with the uh, airlocks where mm, you yeah. very prominent display of the Vulcan Idic yes. symbol yeah because yeah. we know it's a Vulcan freighter it's Vulcan, it's Vulcan picking there, up yeah. the replicators yeah, yeah. and uh, Lieutenant Reese Junior Lieutenant Reese was uh Told to take command of the station, yeah. <laughs> which makes no sense. But uh, yeah, it makes no sense at all. He's totally eager to do it. Why? And now he wants to gloat. I, yeah. I once, I once had an illuminating conversation with Ira Bear that may may ring true to to both of you. Um, I can't remember which episode it was, but I, I I asked Ira this in all seriousness. I said, "Okay, explain something to me, Ira." I could turn in um, a terrible script and you'll completely rewrite it. Or I could turn in an absolutely brilliant, beautiful script and you'll still rewrite it. (laughs) So I said, what's my motivation? (laughs) And I would just kind of get this funny little grin. He would always say, that's Holly weird, Mark. (laughs) So he said, he, he said, he said, look, Mark, we just want you to get the script to the 50-yard line. If you can get it to the 50-yard line, we'll take it the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that didn't change the way I approached things. I still was always aiming for a touchdown, of course. Sure, sure. Of course. You know, you don't want to turn in anything that's not your best stuff. So, so it didn't really change the way I operated, but it definitely gave me an insight into how the episodes end up the way they end up. Yeah, and it, it really seems like kind of the '90s was that that sort of pivot point. Like we we hear from some uh, you know freelancers or, or people who wrote scripts, pre, you know, pre, and and even the early days of TNG, and they and I was they would be never pleased when they would get rewritten. And yet now these days, it's like uh, it's it's such a standard. You know, it's shocking when you don't get rewritten. And it's just yeah, like, it's like what? Wait, what? I don't understand. <laughs> Let me look at it again. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't think it gets talked about enough either when you do these sort of communication things, as you're seeing right here, uh, 
uh, on the screen, you know, the Zoom calls of, of the 21st century, they wouldn't have been talking to each other. They would have been, they would have recorded these moments separately. And because uh, there wasn't such things as Zoom calls back then. But, um, uh, and so the, the ability for these actors to really bring it at the level they do, not being able to play off anyone else is, is, mm-hmm. uh, is great. You know. Yeah, they're playing off the script supervisor reading the yes. other person's lines. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think, unless I'm mistaken, I think this is the only time we see this set, which is kind of the play playing off the reptilian need to uh, be warm. Um, no, this this is the cave sets. This would just be the cave set, yes. But the, I, the uh, eternal cave set, yes. <laughs> yes, the standing cave sets. But the eternal uh, cave set. I love that. I guess I just mean um, you know we never see Garrick and, and Zial chilling in here. Um, no. getting warm again. Although I could be wrong, but, um, and this is, I think probably the one scene that I actually kind of like, uh, uh, this actress here. Um, she has this brief moment coming up where you could just tell she kind of, she's kind of pushing it a little harder and it's, it's, it's almost great, but, um, but she ends up uh, getting recast in the next one. Both telling the truth. I wasn't actually aware of that. I'll have to go back and watch the other episodes. Yeah, so the, the third Zial was the one I think everyone remembers because she was in, um, I think, five or six episodes. Um, Madeline Smith, I believe, was her name. And uh, she yeah. was great. She um, had that kind of right balance of, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, you, you, you could, she, she, she uh, what am I trying to say here? She, you, you believed her when she was, like, kicking ass, I guess. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, and, you know, she had that right balance of like, just that edge to her where you're like, yeah, you could, you could, you could totally kill someone, but also yeah. enough of it where you're like, yeah, but you could also like, you know, end up at a nice little cottage in the country and live a very happy life. And that, would be <laughs> and that, that balance is, um, is hard to find. I won't be needing this anymore. I think it's funny that Garrick showed up with a with a phaser or whatever yeah. that was called. Though I think for me, when I was watching this again, I was like, Garrick knows that he's kind of playing her at this moment. Like he's doing the reverse psychology thing of like allowing himself to be like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disarm, I'm gonna be, uh, disarm her by presuming that she is the bigger threat here in this situation." Even though Garrick mm-hmm. knows that, like he is. He could just, he, you know, Garrick's a badass. Like, he could just take down <laughs> anyone. And you always get that sense, too, of, like, he knows, like, he could he could be running this station if he wanted to. And he has that kind of sense <laughs> to him of, like... That, and how do you that, know he isn't? Uh, well, yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> any reason to drag them here? Oh, here's the big scene. You didn't have to come back either. It is, it is tragic. And I'm so glad that Cassidy does come back um, after, well, I think it's... 15 months or something. And there was really no other way to end the story. You know? Yeah. She, she had to, she had to pay some price. And I, and I don't mean that like in a vindictive way, like I wanted to see the character suffer or something, but it just, I still have my, deal. it's the only thing that made sense for the storyline was for Cassidy to have to pay some sort of price. And it's, you know, it's part of the moral ambiguity that, that is all the, all over the place in Deep Space Nine sometimes. You also want to put Cisco into as difficult a position as possible. Um, yeah. I mean, really, you know, as, as a writer, your, your job is to torture your characters as much as you can. And so if you can, you know, make it even more difficult for him to deal with Cassidy, so much the better. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's funny. I, I just did this other podcast, The Seventh Rule, a month or two ago. And and the host made that same comment. They were like, geez, Mark, you really like to torture Cisco in your scripts, don't you? And I was like, I never thought of it that way, but it kind of seems that way. But yeah, yeah. like you said, that's, that's drama. That's good drama. Yeah. I used to, I, I occasionally teach uh, TV script writing classes. And when I give my lecture on the kinds of stories that are always surefire to pitch, one of the stories on my list is take your favorite character and isolate them with the last person on earth or the last person in the universe that they would ever want to be stuck on an elevator with and see what happens. Yeah. And that's, that's, so that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what I love about it too, is like, she is, uh, not, uh, uh, ashamed She's not mm-hmm. begging. Yeah. She's not, yeah. you know, yeah. it, she's coming from a, such a strong place and you you feel like, and that's what I love about Cassidy as a character. And a lot of these people from Deuce's Nine is like, they are, they are, they are the stars of their own story. And they are mm-hmm. like firmly um, uh, 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 having that autonomy and having that authority over, over a scene or over a situation, which is, it's and a hard Cassidy, thing I mean, to do. She has to be because she has to be worthy of, of Cisco. I mean, he has to be yeah, somebody that you absolutely. could buy that he would fall yeah. in love with. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, writing characters to be active and then having that activation in, in, even in their own, like, scenes and in their own stories is, uh, you know, it's not always easy. And then Deep Space Nine always manages to do that from all of these ensembles. Is, and that's, it's so great. Um, anyway, as we wrap up this episode here, uh, Mark, what are you working on these days? Well, I just finished a, um, a spec feature script. That I'm looking to get out on the market soon. Uh, I don't Congratulations. have an agent. Thank you. I don't have an agent at the moment, though, so that makes it a little tricky. Um, so, and you know, the search for agents sometimes can be more, even more difficult than the search for fi- finding someone to buy your script. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm dealing with that. Uh, I'm executive producing a second season of of the UFO show, UFO Witness, um, for Discovery Plus. Um. And uh, yeah, a couple other things. I have have a Star Trek related book proposal um, out out in the universe right now. We're hoping my my I have a literary agent. She doesn't deal with scripts. Uh, she deals with books. Uh, so my book agent, we are we're getting this uh, book proposal. This, like I said, Star Trek related book proposal. Uh, putting it out in the universe to see what kind of. Uh, what energy it attracts. So I'm really, I'm really hoping that one goes through because it would be a very fun project. Nice. Very cool. And if uh, fans want to get in touch and see what you're up to, do you have any uh, social media handles you like to like to plug? Uh, uh, Yeah. On Twitter, I'm at Mark O'Connell underscore one. And that's M-A-R-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L underscore one. And I also have a podcast called Far Fetched. It's on Podbean. Uh, it's also on Apple Podcasts and any any other place any other place you go to listen to podcasts. Uh, again, far fetched, F A R hyphen F E T C H E D. That's fantastic, and uh, I'll, I'll say you did a couple episodes about, about about specifically your Star Trek pitches, which are really fascinating. Um, you know, with us doing just nothing but commentaries here, we uh, <laughs> get hard to explore those. But for listeners who want to hear more about uh, your pitches, those, those episodes are a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I thought I thought it would be fun to do a podcast where I just read all of my unsold Star Trek pitches. 
Yeah. <laughs> because I because I have a lot. I have a, I have a lot that I pitched that never went anywhere, and and I filed them all. Apparently, I have I have filing cabinets full of this stuff. And I thought, what the hell? This would be a fun podcast to do. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, all right. Well, for listeners out there, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us uh, at Trexpert's Briefing Room, or I'm sorry, at Trexpert's BR on Twitter, um, where we post a lot of behind the scenes pictures and. Uh, uh, information about, about new episodes, as well as Trexpert's Briefing Room on Instagram. Uh, we want to thank our executive producers, Mark Altman and Dean Devlin, as well as our producer, Natalie Miscali, sound engineer, Mark Rivera, and everyone else at Electric Entertainment. Um, so for Lisa Klink and myself, I want to say thanks very much for being here. If you like the show, rate us five stars, please. And uh, if you don't like the show, don't rate it. That's a- Until <laughs> <laughs> um, next time, uh, the Briefing Room is now closed. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.